church, Pastor Cody here, and I just want to say thank you for stopping by and joining us in worship today. And while we're super excited that you're hanging out with us for this message, we also want to remind you that this is really just um, a supplemental resource that cannot and will not replace the local church. So while um, we're, we're glad that you're here, while we're glad that you're encouraged and, and, and uh, challenged and shaped by the Word of God that's being preached today, we also want to um, let you know that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the uh, gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible-believing church. Jesus is preparing the church um, that's close to you um, and he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church and we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump right in with us and we're glad you're here. Um, I'm Adam. I'm one of the pastors here, and I wanted to say uh, welcome to rest this morning. If this is your first time with us, we're so glad that you're you're hanging out with us today. And and it's a new year, 2024. And to kick off 2024, what your pastor team decided to do because of the life, the season that your our church is in right now is that we decided for 24, we first needed to look back to 23. That's Psalm 23. Now, odds are you've probably heard or read or sung or said this particular psalm somewhere before. You're probably familiar with it in some way. Uh, Isaac, in 1995, you won't know this. Were you born yet? I don't know. Uh, in 1995, Coolio in Gangster's Paradise, he opened up with, even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, if you look at U2, you look at Pink Floyd. If you've seen the movie uh, The Titanic by James Cameron, the priest was reading Psalm 23 as the, sink was, the, the, the ship was sinking down. And so you're probably familiar with this in some way. It's been read at memorials, at funerals. It's traditionally sung in the third meal of Shabbat with Sabbath. And maybe this verse, Psalm 23, maybe it's maybe it's so well known to us because it doesn't really demand a lot from us. Whenever you look at Psalm 23, there's no, there's no mention directly of sin. There's not really a lot of theological doctrines that we have to wrestle with. And, and, and it's almost incon- or conspicuously, intentionally vague with who's saying what. What, where, and when exactly, which is some really, really good news for us because of the open-endedness of the psalm. It makes God accessible to people all across the different areas of their faith journey that they're walking in. Maybe maybe Psalm 23 is so well known because it's simple and it's clear and it's short. It's a verse that you can pack in your pocket with you. It's easily, easily memorized. Or perhaps Psalm 23 is so well known because it has this timeless theme it sets in front of us of God's provision and his trust. And what it does, church, is it speaks this word of comfort into our uncomfort. Calvin, in in his Psalms commentary, said this of Psalms 23. It'll be on the screen. It's perhaps the most remarkable psalm ever composed. Spurgeon called this psalm the pearl of the psalms. When you look at Psalm 23, back over church history, its contribution to the church might just be unparalleled. And like this is such great news for us whenever we're looking at Psalm 23. But there's a problem that I need to set in front of you this morning 
morning, before we go forward today, before we go forward uh, for the next five weeks here in Psalm 23, and let me frame it up like this with another quote. This is from David Kleins. This is what he said of Psalm 23. He said, Psalm 23 is the best known but worst translated chapter of the Bible. The best known, but maybe the worst translated chapter of the Bible. When I read that in my study, it, it caused me to pull the e-brake, to slow down, to carefully look at what the text actually has to say. Because what I've discovered in, in my conversations with others on Psalm 23 is that we've had this inversion sort of happen within the, the content of Psalm 23. And, and what we do, this inversion, is is we, we take the me of Psalm 23 and we set it above the he. And what we end up doing is we focus on the sheep and almost altogether leave the shepherd behind. And when you listen to sermons on Psalm 23, what you'll find from different preachers is a lot of the focus on the me. He leads me. He guides me. He makes me. Me, 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 me. And, and, and like there, certainly there's, there's a place for that in the psalm. We can't, we can't deny that. But we can't do this inversion to set this me above the he because that gets it all, all backwards throughout the course of the, the psalm. So if it's okay with you, I want to take just a couple of minutes, and I mean just a couple, just a couple of minutes to set just a little context of Psalm 23, because what I found is that if we'll lay out just a few breadcrumbs of context, what it can do is help lead us through an information force. So we take just a few breadcrumbs of context that can help lead us through an information force. Is that okay with you? Okay, this crew over here, it's good with. So I'm going to talk to you this morning, okay? So we're just two really quick things, okay? Two really quick things in context I want to show you. Uh, Psalm 23's dualism and, and Psalm 23's placement. Psalm 23's placement. Psalm 23's dualism. So first placement, Psalm 23, it's number 23, say 23, in a collection of 150 uh, Hebrew or Psalms in the Hebrew Bible. Whenever you look at Psalm, the book of Psalms, specifically chapters 15 through 24, what you see is that these, this grouping of Psalms, they operate together as this cluster. And, and so whenever you read Psalm 15 through 24, especially 22 through 24, what you see is this extreme level of editorial organization throughout the Psalms. You see this parallelism come up over and over when you read before and after. You see all of these different callbacks within the Psalms and, and, and it looks a little bit like this because it's part of a trilogy. In Psalm 22 what you see the psalmist is you see him he's surrounded, he's threatened in that Psalm and as you move to Psalm 23 the psalmist he's still surrounded, he's still threatened but now all of a sudden God God is, is there. His presence is there. And that's what makes all of the difference in Psalm 23. This is the truth that makes the difference. That God is there in that struggle. And then as you look to Psalm 24, it's this response, this celebratory response of, of God, of Yahweh, of his kingship and glory over the creation. And so whenever you look at them together, uh, which I encourage you to do, when you look at Psalms 22 through 24, as you look at them as part of this, this trilogy, what you'll see is that this trust that comes, that God brings to us, that it's part of a process and not just this singular individual event, but it's part of a process. And so we can't unmarry Psalms 20 through 24, so that's placement. Now really fast, really fast. Next, dualism. 
take this, chew on it, uh, digest it a little bit. This is personal for me, but I believe it's dualistic in multiple levels because it is a metaphorical word that comes in this psalm. I don't look at this as just a, a poetry that is this uh, distant, literary, academic sort of document that is ill-related to God's people today. I don't, I don't see it like that. I do believe that it is Christocentric, which means that it's Jesus-centered, but that also it's personable, it's applicable to the church, to us, to God's people right now. It speaks prophetically of Jesus Christ. It uses Trinitarian sort of language in the psalm as you, as you read it, but also personally and psychologically it speaks to the, the psalmist who's actually penned this psalm, but it also speaks to you and to me, and it serves almost as this mirror into our own soul and how we approach God in all kinds of circumstances. And this is such good news. This is such good news for us, church, because no matter what plane that you're flying in on this morning as we look at this text, whether you're in uh, the, the, the valley or the summit, whether you're in a desert or a garden, whether you're in hard times or happy endings, this all has a word for you that points back to the good shepherd who's called Jesus Roland Prothero on this voice of the Psalms actually said this about it's, it's, it's who it hits. I want to share that with you real quick. He said the, the reason people are drawn to the Psalms is because the Psalms are the universal language of the human soul from hallelujah all the way to why have you forsaken me? And I share that with you because these words in Psalm 23, church, they're not just meant for a Hallmark card to make you feel good, warm, and fuzzy. And despite the beautiful setting that Psalm 23 has set out for us, what it shows us and tells us is that people's lives back then were just as complicated and just as hard as they are right now. Yet there is a God who leads us, who is over us, and who walks us through it. Amen. So those are the breadcrumbs of context. Now there's a there's a tin layered wedding cake of context outside of Sunday morning. If you would go and search for it yourself, as you'll discover in Psalm 23. But here's my challenge for for many of us this morning. For many of us, Psalm 23, the shepherd's path, it's too familiar to you. In fact, it's so familiar that this path has been so well worn in that you miss the impact of what it says. And so my challenge for, for you today is that if that is you, that you would have ears to hear what the word has to say, that God would cause and create it to be fresh and anew for you. What we're going to find here in this psalm this morning, first off, is a shepherd who is the Lord. And today is all about ownership, which is why we're going to carry this truth with us, that he owns me. Amen. He owns me. And so are you ready, church, to walk down this shepherd's path with me? Amen. Let's start. Look at verse number one. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. What a, what a simple and yet incredibly profound statement right here in the beginning. In this statement, it tells us everything we need to know about the working relationship between God and a human being. And as we read the first part of this first verse, what it should do in us or, or cause in us is for us to ask a question that emerges. And the question is this, 
Who is this shepherd? Who is Yahweh, the Lord, for me? Because both of those angles are really in view here in verse 1. And, and when you look at this and you go, well, this shepherd, you notice, know, does, does this shepherd, does he have the adequate credentials even to, you know, to shepherd me? Because if, you know, if I'm looking somebody, for somebody to run the show, I'm, I'm, I'm not out looking for a barista to come in and do my brain surgery. You know, I'm not, I'm not searching for a chef to rewire my house. If something's got to be handled, especially when it has to do with me, I need to know that it's going to be handled if I'm not the one handling it. Amen? And so we go, well, what does he even have the credentials to, to be my shepherd, my owner, my master? And the reality is that many of our views of who the Lord, L-O-R-D, is would answer that question, is he able to shepherd with the big fat no? A lot of times we have these false views of who God is. Oftentimes we picture God as this genie in a bottle. And so if you need a parking spot, if you need a date, Cody, if you need um, the, the field goal to go through the uprights today against the commanders, Paul Nelson, if you're in here, then all you do is you, you rub the prayer and poof, it's, it's done. And what's even better about this type of lowercase God is that, is that he goes back into the bottle whenever you're done with him. Or if not a genie, sometimes we imagine God as this really sweet papa. We picture God as, as, you know, he's so wise and, and he's so kind and he's so sweet and, and, and understanding. But like papaws, we know, you know, papaws are great whenever they're awake, but after you feed them, they're not really good for much because they're taking a nap, amen, right? And if not a genie and if not a sweet papaw, sometimes we imagine God is just a busy, distant dad, the dad that leaves on Monday, that gets back on Saturday, so he's got board meetings and, and a lot of really important things to do during the midst of, of his week in his life. Lots going on, but he will show up on Sunday, so for you, that means you better clean up, you better, you better look spiritual come Sunday because he's going to show up there. But then when he gets back to Monday again, it's back to usual for you because he'll never know because he's not there, he doesn't care. Have you ever held these or other false views about the Lord before? If so, you know, you know the problems that they bring along with them. A, a, a busy dad doesn't have time for your questions. A, 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 a sweet papa, he's really not strong enough to carry the, the weight of your load. And if your God is a genie in a bottle who comes at your command, then really you are greater than he is. Church, this lowercase g God, he looks real nice in the packaging, but he can really do nothing practically for you. And so if those are some of the things that the Lord isn't, then, then, then really the shepherd, the Lord, who is he? What, what can he really do for me? Because this is the question, church. This is the question that every other question leads back to. It's a question we all long for. In fact, it's a question that God has stuffed inside each one of your hearts. And if that's the case, then it means it's waiting. The answer is waiting to be revealed, which is why I believe that the writer here, the psalmist, he uses the strongest, the heaviest, the boldest name, the proper name of God. And he says, Yahweh, this is the Lord. That's the shepherd that we're 
talking about Lord, L-O-R-D, say Lord. When you see it in all caps like that, this is the proper name of God in the scriptures. It's the divine name. It's Israel's God. Traditionally, in English, it's translated into that capitalization that we see. It's the name that's never, never pronounced by Jewish worshipers. They instead substitute the word Adonai in its place. And so Yahweh, the Lord, is my shepherd. That's who this shepherd is. And if Yahweh the Lord is your shepherd, then you should probably understand a few things about him that uniquely fits him to, to uh, take care of you, to, to, uh, to shepherd you well. And we're not going to go long on this, but this is Yahweh. This is the Lord. This is the one who fed his people in the wilderness for 40 years and they were wondering. This is Yahweh, the Lord. This is the one who parted the Red Sea with his arm, allowing his people to escape from the pursuing Egyptian army. This is Yahweh who guided his people by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. This is the Lord. This is the one who made the walls of Jericho collapse at a shout. This is the one who protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and entered the fiery furnace alongside of them because they refused to worship idols. This is Yahweh the Lord who took a young shepherd after his own heart and, and got, put a sling and a stone in his hand and he defeated Goliath. This is the Lord of Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. This is the Lord of John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word. This is the God who has spoken a hundred billion stars into the galaxy and has connected a hundred billion uh, neuron connections inside of your brain. Yahweh, our shepherd, he doesn't have to check the weather. He dictates the weather. He doesn't have to defy gravity. He created gravity. He has no body. God is spirit. So there's no physical limitation to him. He is constant. He is ungoverned. He is unchanging. Demons, disease, and death, they do not disturb him. He was here long before they were, and he will be here long after they are gone, church. Are you starting to see at least a glimpse of the glory of, of God to say that he is so mind-blowingly mighty yet? What he can do is he can come to you in the calm of the night and touch you like the tenderness of a spring breeze. That's, that's the Lord. That's our, our shepherd. Don't we need a shepherd like this? You need a, you need a shepherd like this and when you look at this, you're like, oh, maybe you're like men. You think, well, why does the psalmist use that particular metaphor there, though, of, of, of shepherd? As you look at the text. Well, the Bible, it does this all the time to, to help us understand God more, to give a personal and intimate image to an invisible God. It gives us things that are comprehensible to understand the incomprehensible. And so it's like, okay, if, if God metaphorically, if he's a shepherd over us, then practically what, what does a shepherd do so we can understand the metaphor church? What are they responsible for? What is, what's a shepherd's job? Well, a shepherd's job is to safeguard his flock to safeguard his, his sheep. And, and the issue for us is how to interpret what a shepherd has written more so than how to interpret the experience of shepherding. And in order to do this, I wanted to show you one of the words used here in this because roa, roa is the verb that's used and it means to shepherd, to 
shepherd. And in Psalm 23, this isn't some rare sort of occasion where God is called a shepherd and, and not in other places, but I put some scripture references. I won't read them. You can screenshot it if you want to. But these are places that we see where God is shepherd. Psalm 81, 95, 7, 103, John 10, Hebrews 13. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life, his life for his sheep. In 1 Peter 5, 4, we use that language of Jesus here at rest to say Jesus is our chief shepherd. He's our senior pastor, 1 Peter 5, 4. So this isn't a new new thing. And of course, shepherd, it's specific to the writer. It's specific to the region that it's written in. But it's also this attribute of God's royal kingship. It's a messianic term that's attached to Jesus. Jesus refers to himself as this in multiple places. What I want you to see here is that this phrase in Psalm 23.1, that it is less of that God is a shepherd, and it's more that King Yahweh is the God who shepherds. He shepherds the psalmist of, of Psalm 23, and he shepherds you and me if you're part of his flock. It's this nearness he brings to us. And, and Martin Luther, uh, he said on this particular instance, he said about faith, that faith, it's really a matter of personal pronouns. He said, as in my Lord, my shepherd, whenever you read the Vulgate, Jerome's Vulgate of this, it, it spells it out as the Lord rules over me, the Lord governs me, he owns me. And so for the psalmist to say this, it's, it's, it's individualized, it's personalized to this writer here that, that this is his shepherd. But, but, but don't misunderstand it. It's not his shepherd that, that God belongs to him. No, no, no. This is his shepherd that he belongs to Yahweh. And that's the same way it is for us followers of Jesus, that our whole lives are all wrapped up in the identity of who he is. It all comes from that as a child of God. I don't own him. My shepherd owns me. He owns me. And, and, and this thought, it should stir your spirit, man, in the, in, the, in the deepest place to think, to think that God in Christ is so deeply concerned about you and the path you're on in following him. That yes, God is good, but more specifically, he's good to his sheep. This should blow your, blow your mind. It's this idea of walking close to God, of walking in Christ. That's the heart of this psalm where we see God. He's God over the whole scene. But also, he's the one carrying the psalmist throughout the whole scene. God loves you, and he is for you, and he delights in you. But it's all to point you and other people back to him. It's about his glory, not, not ours. And it's as if the, the, the psalmist here, it's as, as if he's standing on a, on a box with his megaphone. He's going, look at who my shepherd is. Look at who owns me. Look at my master and how good he is. He owns me. Yet for us, in spite of having such a shepherd, many of us, what we, what we can't come to terms with is who's really in control of our lives. We're somewhat dissatisfied. You know, we always think that the grass is greener in some other pasture that we haven't been to yet. And so we almost boast in this in like a, a sort of personal anthem like Sinatra's old song. You know, I did it my way because forget the easy way. Forget God's way. No, no, I, I want to do this my way. And a quick sidebar on sheep. Cody, throw me lamb chops. Uh, this is a quick sidebar on sheep. 
This is Lamb Chalice. My, um, this is for those of you who weren't in FFA growing up. Um, my, my Australian shepherd has been dying to get a hold of this, by the way, uh, ever since I got it. But sheep, you know, when you look at sheep, they're, they're, they're dumb and uh, they're dirty. Not this one, but they're dirty and they're defenseless. And, and, and God calls us sheep in the Bible over some 200 times, which isn't an accident, uh, by the way. But sheep, more than any other class of livestock, as far as I know, they require more meticulous attention and care than most of their other friends that are on the farm. And, and yeah, sheep are dumb. Yeah, sheep are defenseless. Yeah, they're dirty. But that's not really the point that this psalm is making, okay? But one thing, one point I think the psalm is making, that sheep are another D and that sheep are dependent. They're dependent. Because sheep, see, they need somebody bigger and badder and stronger than themselves to survive. They need someone looking out for them just to live. They need someone to protect and, and, and provide for them. And, and so when we, when we find out that Jesus is the shepherd, the natural link for us is that you and I, that we're a lot like sheep, and immediately when I, when I think of this metaphor of, of, of sheep, I'm like, man, that feels like a terrible metaphor because can it be like, you know, in the safari of life, Jesus is the lion king and we're the lions in his pride or something like that, you know, but that's not what it says. It says that me and you, that we're like sheep and it's like, well, who even cares if a sheep shows up, you know, like who, who even notices if a, if a sheep cries, bah, right? Like... <laughs> Who cares? Well, I'll tell you one person who cares. I'll tell you one person who notices, the good shepherd. And maybe that's the whole point. That he notices, that he cares, that, that he sees you. Because you and I, we belong to him. Let me have this back. So just abide with me for just a second on this. Play along if you would. I want you to raise your hand if any of the following describes you. You can always and every time uh, control your mood. You never need a Snickers. You never get a bad attitude. You're always upright and do right. Is that anybody? Does that describe anybody in the room? No? Okay. What about you're at peace with everybody? Every relationship you have is like sweet as Christmas cookies. Even your old flames speak really, really highly about you. You've never wronged anyone. Is that speak of, of anybody in here? What about, okay, you have no fear. Let's imagine you go to the doctor this week and the doctor's like, well, a heart condition has popped up and you're like, Tuesday, you know, or, or let's say World War Three breaks out and so you're like, oh my gosh, and you call your, your wife and you're like, honey, what's for dinner? Like, like, like you have no, 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 no fears. Is this anybody? Or lastly, what about this? You need no forgiveness. You've never made a mistake. You've always gone the wrong, right way. You've always lived the right life. You've never cheated, never lied, never broken a commandment. You are the perfect embodiment of the law of God. Is this any of us? No, of course it's not. This is none of us. And so listen, just follow me. By your own, our own self-admonition, none of us in here would pick any of us to run the show. You're not qualified, and neither am I. We are feeble and, and fickle and fragile in every sense of the word. Do we really have the audacity to pound our chests and go, I want it my way? 
when there is a shepherd who is qualified. There is one, Yahweh the Lord, my shepherd. What a wonderful thing it is that he owns me. Next, the second part of this verse, because God is my shepherd, I shall not want. I love the location of this truth in Psalm 23 because I think really the position of surrender that it sits in, it really sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. In fact, I don't think you can move through the rest of the psalm until you first set in a place of surrender to, to the Lord. He can't lead you, or if he does, you're not going to follow him. Uh, he, he can't restore you, he can't prepare you for the garden, he can't prepare you for the desert if you're not in step with him, if you don't surrender. And so, not want, say not want, the, of course it is this sentiment about a sheep that is utterly satisfied in, in, its, in its owner. It's about a person who is totally satisfied with their lot in life. But also there's this second emphasis to it. And it's absurd for you and I to look at this in particular part two of this verse and to believe that the child of God will never experience lack, that we will never experience need while on this planet because it's not true. Even as you you progress through the rest of this psalm, you see that that is not true. Jesus said to John, or Jesus said to his apostles in John, he said, in this godless world, you're going to have difficulties, but take heart, I've conquered this world. And so on one hand, it's like, yes, blessed are those who are, are healed and then believe. But maybe, maybe even more blessed are those who aren't healed and still believe. Whenever we hear this, the first thing we should want to do or we should do is put it to the test. That's what we should do with this verse first. We should want to put it to the test. We should test not want, not lack because we've got to be honest about what God can do. But we also have to be honest about the realities of the world that we live in. And so um, there's this older book. It's actually as old as me. And it's written by a guy named Nicholas Volterstorff. And Nicholas, he had a son. Uh, his name was Eric, who died at age 21, mountain climbing. And, and, and Nick is this brilliant, brilliant philosopher uh, and, and, and really, really serious follower of Jesus. At 91, he, he's the professor emeritus at philosoph the philosophical theology at Yale. And he wrote this book. And it's called Lament for a Son, and it's such a, a good gift for anybody who's ever had to experience that, the death of a child. I don't, I don't think there is any deeper pain um, on, this, on this planet than, than that. But in this book, Nick, he talks about being haunted by this verse that comes up in the scriptures and Psalms, and, and, and it carries a similar concept to Psalm 23, so I wanted to share that with you really, really fast. It's this, Psalm 121.3, it says, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. And Nick, the dad, he was haunted by this verse because, well, Eric's foot did slip. And he did fall. And he did die. And for 40 years, Eric's dad has, has mourned him. And this almost, when you look at this not slip, does slip. It almost seems like a, a counterintuitive claim. CJ, this is formal and functional. And so church, whatever shall not want, shall not lack means, foot won't slip. It, it's not a guarantee of, of lifelong physical safety for you. It does not mean that you will be financially well off or physically okay or not even hungry. To not slip, to not lack here, the idea, generally speaking, in the Old Testament, it's not really about falling and having, but it's more about having... Um, 
having Christ, not leaving this path of obedience, that he will cause us to stay on the path following him. And, and, and so to believe that God shepherds us isn't to believe that he will pull away all problems and pains and troubles and difficulties from your life. This verse doesn't say the Lord is my shepherd and so I get everything that I want. That's not what it says here. But, but what he's telling us is that God will help keep you from sin if you have a heart that's yielded to him. And, and as you test this, what you'll find out and not want is that everything on this planet is at risk. Your job is at risk. Your body is at risk. The bodies of people that you love is, is at risk. Everything physical on this planet is at risk. But nothing eternal is at risk. Nothing eternal is. And we'll get into this more later with Psalm 23, but this is the truth of what Paul said in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he names all this stuff. Tribulation or, or uh, distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, yet we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and so no matter the cause no matter the need we know that our circumstances will eventually work out because God is our our shepherd even over our worst circumstances on this planet and this should bring you church this should bring you this incredible sense of shalom this incredible sense of peace and as we've said before, biblical peace, it's not about avoiding conflict. It's not about an absence of problem. Biblical peace, what it's about, it's about recognizing the shepherd's presence in the middle of the problems. And then when you do that, you can have shalom, shalom, which is a perfect peace that comes from God. Church, the, the focus of this psalm, don't, don't be misguided. It's not the little superscription that talks about David. It's not even mainly about sheep. It's not even mainly about the church. Its gaze is set to the shepherd. And when we, we set our gaze to the shepherd, we will lack no thing. <laughs> and this is so good. The psalmist, what he's doing is he's whispering to you and to me the secret of satisfaction. Did you catch that? Because the idea, the way that we not want isn't by just not wanting more. I not want by focusing on the shepherd. Because in the shepherd, I have so much more in him than I would ever lose in all the things I don't have. In this shepherd, you have a God who hears you. You have the power of God, the Holy Spirit in you. You have all of heaven ahead of you. In the shepherd, you have a grace for every sin. You have direction at every turn. You got a flashlight for every corner and an anchor in every storm. You have everything that you need. And the truth is, you and I, we could learn a lot this morning if we prayed more like this old Puritan in that daily bread. All of this in Jesus too. All of this in Jesus too. See, heaven, it doesn't know you by the guy that drives the big truck. Heaven doesn't know you as the mom with the cleanest baseboards or the students with the best grades. Heaven knows you by your heart. And whether or not that heart has been surrendered to the shepherd, does he own you?